Well, hey, I got a little late start on you too there. So you know where they're going, though. It's a beautiful day. I hope it's a beautiful day where you are. It certainly has been here in Franklin, Tennessee. This is Dan Miller, your host, again, for our Tuesday night brainstorming session where each Tuesday night we talk to somebody in the 48days.net community who's doing something, people who are taking action. You've heard from a whole lot of people who have taken action in unique areas. Tonight is going to be another wonderful experience in that same vein. Tonight we have on the line with us Dr. Clark Gaither. Clark, welcome in tonight. Well, thank you, Dan. I really appreciate this uh, opportunity to share some of what I've been doing. And um, uh, you, of course, continue to be an inspiration to all of us. I love this brainstorming session you started. Well, thanks. It's a lot of fun for me. Golly, just a variety of people. You know, one of the best ways to get coaching yourself is to interview other people. But I joked with Jamie Tardy, who wrote The Eventual Millionaire, and I had the privilege of doing the forward for that book. But she's she's interviewed millionaires all over the country. And I said, boy, you, you've gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of free coaching by just simply interviewing people who have been successful, asking them how they did it, how could you do it. So it's, it's certainly my privilege to be in this seat and to be able to talk to people like you. Uh, you've got a a very interesting background and future, I might add, and that there's really two major directions that we want to go tonight. One is, and the way that Jen McDonald kind of positioned it is, you know, how do you move into coaching and have that be successful? The other is the unique area of your coaching, that being from your perspective as a physician yourself and recognizing the signs of professional burnout. And as you and I have talked, that, that includes not just physicians but other professionals as well. So I really want to I, I go in those two directions, and we'll just kind of take questions as they, as they come. But we'll talk for a little bit here, and then we'll go to listener questions. So if you're on the line and you've got a question for Clark, whether it is in how to launch your coaching business, which we're going to talk about, or whether it is how to recognize and prevent professional burnout. Now, let's let's start kind of on the coaching area first, Clark. And that being, you have been a physician for how long now? I've been a physician since 1989. Uh, you become a physician when you graduate from medical school. But I spent three years in residency training so I started private practice in 1992. All right. So that's uh, 22 years. 22 years you've been a practicing physician. So give us some of the highlights of that. Uh, I want you to tell as well about some of the you know, humanitarian work that you're doing. Obviously, everything you're doing is humanitarian in that arena. Would you tell me when I connected with you a little bit ago on the phone, you're saving the world one person at a time or something eloquent like that? <laughs> I said, I said, you asked me how my day was going. I said I was, I've been stomping out disease wherever it rears its ugly head, and uh, <laughs> snatching people from the jaws of death. Uh, of course, that's all hyperbole. Um, most of my day is the everyday practice of family medicine. Uh, I treat patients on a variety of conditions. We see children on through uh, young adults, adolescents young adults, adults, and then 
certainly seniors. And so uh, we treat a variety of, of medical problems like hypertension and diabetes and cholesterol disorders and depression and anything that you would uh, think of going to the doctor for, really. Uh, family medicine is kind of the first line uh, for uh, treating families. And one of the things that appealed to me about family medicine, I've always been curious, had a curious nature, um, but I'm easily bored. And family medicine, uh, every every patient's different, every patient, every patient encounter is different. And so I, when I was going through the different residency rotations, nothing got me more excited than family medicine. I couldn't see myself doing pediatrics all day, every day, or psychiatry, or internal medicine, or dermatology, or any of the subspecialties. Family medicine uh, sort of embodied what being a doctor was about to me, and I like the continuity of seeing uh, children on up through their adult years and then seeing their children, which has, has occurred in my practice. And so uh, family medicine's always kind of uh, done it for me in terms of uh, keeping my interest. Okay. Uh, at, at the same time, uh, you touched on burnout. At the same time, um, the practice of medicine has changed so much, even in the last five years. Um, the last 10 years has almost been a quantum shift in the way uh, the business of medicine is conducted. And I myself got burned out about four or five years ago. Uh, it was too much work, too much responsibility. I wasn't taking care of myself properly, wasn't getting enough rest. And I went to my partner and I said, you know, something's got to change. Either I'm going to have to make some changes, some drastic changes, or I'm going to have to quit medicine. I mean, it had gotten that bad. And so I cut back on my... Uh, hours. I went to three days a week. I was on about 12 different boards, uh, only one of which I cared anything about. So I resigned from a lot of those responsibilities that I really didn't have a passion for. I started exercising more. I started eating better um, and started rekindling some old interests and, and sort of pulled myself out of burnout. And that's when I got interested in the topic. I started reading more about it, and I started um, actually giving some talks on burnout, and that has sort of led me to where I am now with with uh, dealing with professional burnout or physician burnout. Well, that's the way that coaching typically evolves. We coach in an area where we've been challenged ourselves. I mean, when you look at you know, Dave Ramsey. He coaches people not to make the mistakes that he made in money. You know, I got into this career area when I was going through a really challenging transition myself. So it does. Our own experiences open our eyes to how we can help other people avoid the same thing we went through. Now, with that, then, you you know, it almost seems ironic that physicians – would experience burnout with the physical kind of challenges that you just described that you yourself experienced. What are some of the indicators, whether somebody is a physician or not, what are some of the indicators that you clearly see that burnout may be on the horizon? 
Well, there are three principal uh, hallmarks of burnout. Uh, this was all worked out by a Dr. Christina Maslach in 1981. She published a paper on burnout uh, for professionals, and she identified three uh, hallmarks of burnout, the first being emotional exhaustion. And that's a feeling of being emotionally depleted to a point where you feel like you no longer can give your, of yourself at any emotional or psychological level. Now, people, you'll hear people say, I just feel used up. I have nothing left to give, or I feel even dead inside. And, and so uh, emotional exhaustion is the, is the first one. The second is depersonalization. And that's the development of negative or cynical feeling, which is almost dehumanized, it gives a, a person a dehumanized perception of the patient or the client or the customer. And, and that leads to a view that maybe some, they are somehow deserving of their own problems. And so cynicism is the key word for depersonalization. And then the third hallmark of burnout is a lack of a sense of personal accomplishment. People feel so little reward at what they're doing that there's a tendency to evaluate, they tend to evaluate themselves negatively. And that leads to an immense dissatisfaction and unhappiness in their work. And so they, they get a sense, a, a sense of a lack of personal accomplishment. And the key word there would be inefficacy. They feel ineffective uh, at what they're doing. And so those are the three hallmarks, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and inefficacy. And All right. women, women tend to go through it a little different. They go through it in that order. They get emotionally exhausted first, then they depersonalize or become cynical, and then they hit a lack of a sense of personal accomplishment. Men are different. They hit, they get cynical first. And then they will become emotionally exhausted or depleted. And men rarely hit the third one. They always feel like their work has some value to it. So they never really fully develop a lack of, of a sense of personal accomplishment. So when hmm. I hear cops talk and I hear them, when everything coming out of their mouth is negative, especially about uh, patients or patient encounters, uh, they're already hitting cynicism or depersonalization. And since they only go through two stages, they are halfway to burnout right there. Wow. Now, let's play this out a little more then. So we have a physician, male or female, who is starting to experience burnout, as you describe it here. But usually, they're used to a position that requires that kind of intensity, those kind of long hours, and they're used to the kind of income that's created by that, feeling trapped by all of the above. How do most people deal with it at that point? Well, it, sometimes they don't deal with it because sometimes they really don't know what's happening. A lot of times burnout is ascribed to stress or anxiety. 
And while someone who is burned out is experiencing stress and anxiety, it doesn't necessarily lead to burnout. And the two are actually treated uh, quite differently. Um, it, you can take someone who's fully engaged, and by the way, that is the opposite of burnout, is engagement. Um, you can take somebody who's fully engaged with passion and purpose about what they do, and you can put them in a bad work environment, and you will burn them out every time. They will become burned out. And there's actually six uh, mismatches between the individual and the job that if those are present, those mismatches, then uh, people tend to burn out. And it's not just in medicine, it's in any profession. And those six six mismatches are work overload, lack of control, insufficient reward, a breakdown of community, absence of fairness, and conflicting values. And if if you uh, have all those or some of those present in the workplace, then the burnout rates can be very high. So a lot of times it's not the individual that creates the burned out condition. It's the organization that they work for. You know, as you went through that list, I'm thinking, ooh, accountant, engineer, dentist, attorney, pastor. (laughs) I can think of real people in all those positions, just as you are identifying those symptoms. Wow, that's pretty profound. So, you know, it sounds like it sounds all bad, but it's not. There are things that can be done uh, in the work environment to lessen uh, the opportunity for burnout to occur. Or if it's present, there are things you can do to alleviate burnout or to prevent it. Um, well, I know you're an eternal optimist in that area because, you know, that is where you want to focus your efforts moving forward is helping those professionals who experience that. I went through your the, the delightful ebook you have on, what do they call it, an apple a day makes the doctor stay? Yes. I love yeah. that. The yeah. The ideas. That's uh, gets at two of the mismatches. Um, it helps administrators who employ physicians uh, get at two of the mismatches, which are insufficient reward and breakdown of community. That that little ebook really addresses uh, doling out more reward uh, for physicians that are uh, successful for an organization and are doing their job well. And it also there are ideas in there to create a sense of community a better sense of community, which uh, will strengthen uh, an organization and help prevent burnout. Okay. And, again, those principles go into any kind of profession that we might address. But now because of that, because of your personal experience and then walking through it, finding correction, making adjustments in your lifestyle, your thinking, all those things you identified – that positioned you and gave you the desire to position yourself as a coach in that arena. Um, so at this point, and, and, and I know you and I have talked about this, but you, in as much as those principles would apply to any profession, we know there's such 
an enormous amount of burnout in the medical profession that you really are targeting that and finding some um, very high receptivity in that community as it relates to burnout, correct? Well, correct. And the the burnout rates among physicians are are not only horrendously bad, they're epidemic. It's really a pandemic. Uh, burnout rates in some specialties approach 70%. Uh, the specialties of emergency care or emergency medicine and critical care are the highest burnout rates at 70%. Um, a, a 2011, I believe it was, survey of over 2,000 physicians found 87% of them felt moderately or, per, or severely stressed or burned out. Another study, uh, six out of ten physicians would quit medicine today if they were financially able to do so. Six so out of ten. Sixty percent of doctors would quit today if their bills were paid for. Um, My goodness. And this, there was a doctor's company. They insure more physicians for um, malpractice insurance than anybody in the U.S., and the doctor's company did a survey. There were 5,000 respondents. Ninety percent of them said they would not recommend a career in medicine to anyone. Wow. And that's just a, that's an astoundingly bad statistic, uh, no matter which way you look at it. And so when I started thinking about um, what I was going to do uh, with coaching and how to be the most effective, I looked first at the individual physician. And that's where I was going to apply all my effort uh, or to the individual professional. But the more I read and the more I studied, especially lately, I got hold of another book on burnout by Dr. Maslach. It's clear that because so many physicians now work for organizations, a lot of the control that they once had over their practice is gone. And so my customer may not be just the individual physician, which is one approach to treating burnout. My my biggest customer may be actually the employer of physicians or the administrators who employ doctors because they run the organizations that are burning out the doctors. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot they can do. It costs about 100000 to a $1 million to replace one doctor. And if you can prevent just one turnover a year, then you, you've more than paid for my consulting fee, let me tell you. Mm. So, okay. Go ahead. I want you to share that. I gave a talk this last Friday. Actually, I've been waiting to give this talk for two months. And it's really the first uh, talk I gave devoted uh, strictly to burnout and to a group of administrators who oversee physicians uh, in hospitals and large groups. The talk was to the North Carolina Association of Medical Staff Services. Now, every hospital has an office of medical staff services. That's actually the conduit between the doctor and the hospital administration. The applications for employment go through that office. Credentialing is done in that office. If a physician is having a problem, it goes through that office. Or if the hospital is having a problem with the doctor, it goes through the medical staff services office. So the uh, people who run those offices 42 of them showed up in Raleigh for a a meeting, 
and I went and gave a talk Friday morning on uh, burnout, and it was really just an overview of burnout, hallmarks, uh, the mismatches between the organization and the doctor, and what could be done about it. And it was extremely well received. Uh, out of that one talk, I got one um, um, uh, um, it just went right out of my head. One, one consultation or one um, uh, hospital is going to employ me to come and talk to them about burnout and survey their physicians. And I may have a second one. I don't know yet. I'm in uh, discussion with another hospital. And and so this is the this will be the first fruit of. Uh, <laughs> Uh, my consulting, that's what I was trying to say, my consulting efforts, uh, if uh, if it all comes to fruition. Okay. <clears throat> Let's talk about that transition a little bit. So you're professional. You're used to the income that a physician makes. But in making this transition into coaching consulting, I mean, we know the need is there. It separates you from the pack of what everybody else is doing. You have the credentials and the experience to bring wisdom into that area. So talk to us a little bit about positioning yourself as a coach. How do you intend to deliver services as a coach now rather than as a physician? Well, uh, from this meeting, uh, I think it's all about developing some funnels, uh, Dan. I mean, I'm new at this, and, of course, I've been I, – I came to your place I've been to the sanctuary five times this year. Can you believe that? <laughs> yeah, you're regular here. So I keep coming back to learn because uh, I started this whole process the first of this year, and, and I'm kind of stumbling through it and, and trying to soak up as much as I can from what other people are doing. But I can see the utility in uh, doing talks and making some offers or offering some things at the end uh, that will have some benefit or payoff uh, down the road. So from this one talk, i got one consulting client for sure. I've got another maybe, and those are my consulting fee for a hospital is 15000 And so uh, from that, I'll be going to talk to some physicians. I anticipate probably getting some coaching, uh, some coaching work through my interaction with the doctors when I go at the behest of the hospital for the consultation. Uh, I've got an invite to the national meeting of medical staff services, which is in February, and there should be four or 500 people there from all across the country. Um, and so it's those kinds of opportunities that I can see will have a tremendous uh, opportunity for uh, future business in one arena or another, either consulting or personal coaching. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what I want people to hear because we have a lot of people in uh, this community who want, would like to be a coach. And you're a great example of how we take your background, your own personal experience, and transition into then coaching in an area where you do bring some unique expertise. So you've already identified several things there. You can work with physicians one-on-one. -on -one. That's certainly part of it. That's a great model. You can go in and consult the organizations that hire those physicians, and you said that's a $15,000 package. You can speak 
And I know you've got a lot of speaking things lined up already where you, you can speak and be paid well as a speaker. You've created already you know, some of your uh, delightful little e-books that will start to both promote what you do and also be an income stream. And you can do instructional manuals. You can do audio programs. I mean, we can go down a list of things you can do to leverage your unique expertise as a coach so that you, in fact, can realistically look at replacing your significant income as a physician. And, you know, that's a great example for people to hear and a great model for people to follow because a lot of people feel trapped. Well, gee, I am a physician. I'm a dentist. I'm an attorney or an accountant or an engineer, and surely I could never transition out of that and just do this little light, fluffy thing we call coaching. Well, sure you can if you position yourself as a business person and then frame the coaching as such. So you, you've got a whole lot of those things already kind of in motion. Um, I, I want to I come back to that, but I also want to ask a couple other things. And incidentally, you know, if you're listening, I mean, I'm full of questions for Clark, but if you've got questions about professional burnout, how to anticipate it, how to recognize it, how to prevent it, how to take care of it, or if you have questions about how to move into coaching, just jot those in the little chat room there, whether you're online with us or whether you're over there at 48days.com with Alan Jackson in the crowd there. You can ask it there. I'm seeing those come in as well. So feel free to put in your question, and we'll get to the, as many of those as we can. There's also an area that I know you really have a heartfelt passion for, and that has been your serving the underserved. I mean, tell us about how you developed that program and you know, how that's going to continue, even if you move into some other areas. Yeah, that's uh, uh, – it's been 14 uh, – no, actually, the free clinic has been up and running for 14 years, but it actually started about two years before that. So 16 years ago, um, I was noticing that we did have a pretty good health department here in our county. Our county is a pretty large footprint. There's 115,000, 120,000 people in the county, 35,000 in Goldsboro City. We've got Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, which did have a, a clinic for retirees, which they were closing down. But the one thing our county uh, didn't have, we had a good hospital. Um, we didn't have a free clinic. And I thought, you know, the health department does charge on a sliding scale, uh, but some people don't have the extra funds even to pay the sliding scale. And so we were we had over 100 doctors in the Department of Medicine. I thought, well, it's a shame we don't have a free, cl free clinic for uh, people to – uh, come to and get some care at no cost. And so all I did then, really, uh, this has been a monumental effort from a lot of people, but all I had was an idea, and I went and asked one person one question. I went to the grant, light, grant writer for the hospital, her name is Sissy Lee Elmore, and I said, Sissy, I want to start a free clinic. Are there any funds out there available uh, for a startup of a free clinic for our county, uh, and I want to provide care absolutely free because when you if you charge anything, even a dollar, then all these other agencies want to come in and tell you how to do things. And I didn't want any of that. I wanted the care to be free. I wanted the physicians to volunteer. I was going to volunteer on it. 
So I just asked her, is there some place you can get a fund? And she said, let me look into it. Well, uh, long story short, within uh, probably a month, she had put to, a proposal together to the Duke Endowment. Uh, I thought the clinic should be mobile. We had a big uh, service area, um, a lot of transportation barriers. And so we wrote a grant proposal uh, for almost $300,000 and submitted it to the Duke Endowment. And they gave us the uh, money. Uh, we bought a, a Lifeline mobile medical unit, had two exam rooms, a wheelchair lift, a bathroom, a lab, uh, a nurse's station, uh, some uh, equipment. Um, it's 48 feet long, I believe. It weighs just under the limit, so you don't need a special license to drive it. It had a generator, bathroom, uh, and so we put it in the service 14 years ago. It goes to 19 different places in the community uh, every month. Uh, we really outstripped this ability to provide care. We, it sees about 600 patients a month on the mobile unit. Uh, we eventually opened a satellite clinic at the Family Y, so now we're seeing over 800 patients a month uh, for free. Um, their labs are free. Uh, that's another interesting story. I had a, a certain lab company um, in my office that we were using. Another large lab firm came. They wanted Goldsboro Family Physicians' lab account very badly. I mean, really bad. They wanted us bad. And so uh, they were giving us a proposal. The pricing was really good, but I, it was going to take something uh, special to move me off the lab we were using. And so I asked another question. I said, if you will give the mobile unit patients labs for free, if you will cover them, I will switch to your company. And they didn't even blink. They said, of course we will. And so uh, all the patients that are seen on the unit, all their labs are free. Um, over the years, we, we went through that first Duke Endowment um, money. In about three years, we applied for chronic disease management, got funded for another three years. Then we applied for another startup program using principally the mobile unit and got funded for another three years. Um, we've been funded every year. Our budget right now is almost 800000 a year, and we find the money from somewhere uh, every year. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, we have a golf tournament every year that brings in, this last year brought in over $100,000 right here in Goldsboro, which is amazing. Wow. Even uh, golf courses in Raleigh don't do that well uh, on fundraising events. And um, So it's been, a, it's been a labor of love. It's been very valuable to the community. We've been able to demonstrate that we have kept people out of the emergency room where they have gone, traditionally gone to get their care. If they didn't have a doctor and didn't have any money, they just showed up in the emergency room. We see all those patients now in the mobile unit. Uh, so we've been able to keep them out of the emergency room. We've been able to manage their uh, diseases better. Uh, we've uh, found children with leukemias, got them to the right place. They're still alive today because they uh, were seen on the unit. Um, actually, the first male patient I saw in the mobile unit uh, had breast cancer. Uh, 
you don't find it often in men, but he came in with a lump in his breast. He was 40-some years old. Uh, it was hard. It was immobile. I was, it was worrisome on exam. I sent him for a mammogram, and sure enough, he had breast cancer. That was the first male patient I saw in the unit. Hmm. Um, so there's a lot of pathology out there we've been able to address. Uh, the unit's still running. Um, we get labs. I mean, uh, the patients get their medicine uh, from the various indigent drug programs of the different pharmaceutical companies. We have two full-time employees that just do that. So all their medicines are free or most of them. Yeah. Now, Clark, let me, let's kind of unpack that a little bit because you're talking about the unrealistic demands of most physicians, and certainly you were part of that scenario, and yet you saw a need and you put a lot of time and effort into this. Obviously, you're very passionate about it, this program of providing free health care there where you live in Goldsboro, North Carolina. You know, it almost seems like you're looking for more work when you're already overworked. But now talk to us a little bit about what happens there when we're doing something where it's not just an exchange for a dollar, but where we know that we're doing something to make the world a better place. How do you, how do you kind of package those two together where it may seem like you're just putting more work in your plate? Well, I think it's um, uh, there's a shift, in, at least in my thinking, there's a shift in your thinking when you go and do service work. Uh, it's a way to give back. I'll certainly tell you that on the mobile unit, we don't have to use electronic health records. We don't have uh, onerous bookkeeping. There's nobody looking in our over our shoulder. It's just me and the patient. And we do the best job we can with what we have. And it so it's in some ways it's a more pleasant practice environment <laughs> because uh it's we've sort of unburdened our system. Uh so we don't have uh regulatory agencies trying to come in and look at our charts because we don't charge anything. It's free. <laughs> uh, so nobody's to come in and review us and there's no federal agencies telling us how to do things and and so it's a great way to practice medicine. Um, now, we do employ some family nurse practitioners. They provide the bulk of the care, and the physician volunteers supplement that because they're on the unit all the time. The physician volunteers come and go. But it, it is that was one of my suggestions, actually, in that free ebook. Um, an apple a day gets the doctor to stay. One of the suggestions was to give your employed physician paid time off to volunteer because a lot of physicians are um, socially minded creatures. They want to do good work. And when they're slaving all the time uh, in the clinic under a big organization, uh, organizational umbrella, a lot of the times they don't get the time off that they would like to go and do other things like volunteer. So even if it's just three hours a month, you know, give your doctor paid time off to go and volunteer for whatever um, service they would like to volunteer at. And 
And, you know, that I put the, uh, in that book, that's a win-win-win. The community wins, the doctor wins, the organization wins because they get to say, look, we give our doctors paid time off to go volunteer. And so uh, it, it just creates a better sense of community. Oh, it does. Well, I love your fresh approach to what seems to be almost an insurmountable problem when you're coming in with a solution like that. And it's obvious even in the, the rising tone of your voice, you know, how much you care about doing that work. Well, it's it's a great example of how I think many of us can reframe some of the things that we want to do where it doesn't just add more busyness. I got a couple of questions about this. As a matter of fact, let me I had a question here from Giovanna, who you know and I know as well from Montgomery. Oh, yeah. She's Yes. She says, Clark, you're a wealth of wisdom. What is your perspective about the excuse of busyness? For example, when someone says they can't do something because they're too busy, many interpret that as just not caring enough. Do you agree that there's a fine line between busyness and apathy, or would you say that the problem is overload? Great question. Well, it, it is a great question, and I think it's probably all over the place. Uh, I think mm-hmm. we, we – you know, I tell patients all the time, and I've been guilty of this. I told you uh, a few minutes ago that I had put myself, it was hard for me to say no. All these people say, would you be on my board? Would you be on this board? Would you be on that board? And I was saying yes, 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 without ever really thinking. You know, I was flattered that they asked me. I felt like they needed my help. I wanted the help, so I said yes, even though I may not have been passionate about it. So I made myself real busy, but... It was because of the choices I was making that really weren't not only in in the organization's best interest, they weren't in my best interest. Uh, when you say yes to sit on somebody's board, you owe it to them to be very interested in what they're doing and and really give it your best effort. And I wasn't doing that on most of the ones I was sitting on. And so... Yeah, I had filled my buffet plate full, uh, and there was no room for anything else, but it was really the choices I was making, and we all make choices. And and so when somebody says, I'm too busy to do, you know, what do I, what do I need to do about this? And I say, well, you need to do this. Well, I can't do that. I'm too busy. Well, you know, we all make choices. Uh, so... <laughs> Sometimes you have to take some uh, things off your plate, and I use this analogy all the time. I tell patients, life is like a buffet. You go down the line and you put things on the plate, and pretty soon the plate's full. And if you keep piling things on the plate, things start falling off of the plate. And sooner or later, you just have to say enough. And sometimes you even have to go back and take some things off the plate. Um, in order to make room for the things you really care about. Absolutely. Great advice. I just finished reading the book, new book by Bob Buford, titled Drucker and Me. talks about his relationship with Peter Drucker, but Drucker was just such an incredible thinker. And he talked about people, as they get a little more successful, they're asked to serve on more boards. They're asked to donate to more organizations. And he said, that's ridiculous. You know, choose one or two and go deep with those rather than being just on the surface with so many. Uh, just last night, Joanne and I sat down. I spread out on our kitchen table while we were eating a bite of soup together. Uh, the, the recent request that I've gotten for, from 
organizations to come to their nonprofit dinners, their fundraisers, or just to give money. And we, I went through this process that Drucker recommended, and we narrowed down to two organizations that we're going to be committed to for 2015. And it's such a sense of relief knowing that we can be more involved with them than we ever have because we've eliminated all the others, done deal, no more are going to be piled on. Well, let me go to a couple other questions here. Royce Harrell, who you know as well, also comes out, you know, he was a medical company executive, but he says, Clark, do you see the physician? You addressed this a little bit earlier, but well, you can clarify. Do you see the physician being your primary client or the hospital as the employer hiring you to work with their physicians? I think, uh, 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 Royce, it'll be a combination of the two. Uh, certainly my wheelhouse is the uh, physician realm because I am one. I certainly understand what they go through every day. So I can certainly impart some empathy. But if you if you focus a, a, all your efforts on a burned-out physician without looking at the organization that they're working for, then you're going to miss half the equation because a lot of times the reason they're burned out is directly related to the circumstances under which they're working. And, and, and let me just say that organizations who employ doctors, that's how they get their income. They don't wake up one day and say, hey, I think we should burn out all of our doctors. I mean, that's not their intention. They, 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 it's just in the worrisome press of the business of medicine nowadays, they do things that don't make a lot of sense if you want to retain doctors. And just pointing those out, just pointing out, say, you know, you could do this a little bit different over here, or you could do that a little bit differently over here, and you could stop this horrendous turnover in your physician staff. That will save you money. The physicians will be more engaged. The patients will be happier. Uh, you won't, you'll get sued less often. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's all win, win, win for everybody involved. So I see my client right now. Uh, as not only the doctor, but the entity that they work for. Now, let me ask you this. I, I don't know how many physicians there are in the United States, but how many, well, perhaps you do know, but then how many are working for organizations and how many are independent entrepreneurs? Right now, somewhere upwards of 70% of all the doctors across the country are working either for large uh conglomerates or groups or hospitals. Um, okay. The, the days of the, uh, uh, you know, independent physician, uh, uh, those days may be gone forever or this may be just a, a pendulum swing again because if you remember back in the 80s when there was talk of um, uh, managed care, when that first started being discussed and uh, Hillary Clinton was involved with uh, some efforts uh, to uh, make the care in the country more manageable. There was a big uh, shift then from private practice. Hospitals started buying practices right and left. And then they figured out that they didn't know how to run them. Uh, and uh, a lot of big conglomerates that bought practices are no longer with us, like Columbia HCA. That was one big one that went bust because running a hospital is quite different than running a private practice. 
but they're trying it again now, uh, and they may have learned from their first mistakes. I don't know. Um, it'll probably never get much more than 70 or 75 percent because there are at least 20 percent. You know, 20 percent of the doctors out there, or 25 percent are mavericks. They're not going to work for any big group or hospital. They're going to be solo. Um, but right now, the largest employer of, of doctors are hospitals. Mm, wow. I remember growing up, and I actually started pre-med in college. That was my major for three and a half years. I switched to the, in the middle of my senior year. But uh, it was largely influenced by our family physician, Dr. Hickson. I mean, he was just an icon to me as a little kid. This guy who would show up in nice clothes in a big, long, black car. I mean, he'd come out to our house. And I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do when I grew up. It had a major influence on me. I, I didn't grow up wanting to be a doctor, but let me tell you, when I decided that was going to be my career path, all I could think about was my family physician growing up, and that was Dr. Horsley. And Dr. Horsley, he delivered me. He came out to my house one time. I was so sick one time. I remember I was like five years old. And he came out to the house with his big black bag and set it on the bed, and he pulled out all these instruments and he examined me, and just his touch, he put his hand on my forehead, which I still remember to this day, and I felt immediately better. And I thought, this guy's magic. There's something magic about this guy. And and when it was all over, my dad opened his wallet and handed him three $1 bills, and that was the payment for his house call when I was five years old. So he, he delivered me. He sewed me up. He set my collarbone a couple of times when I broke it. He put a cast on me one time. I mean, he was he was the quintessential family physician. And so I thought of him often uh, going through medical school. Wow, that's great, Callie. We all need role models like that to guide us into the things that then connect with our passion so we end up in a life that's meaningful and serving others. Um, Tom Schwab here now asks, and you know Tom as well, he asked a question. He says, at what point did you feel you were starting to get traction? Now, let's talk about that a little bit in terms of when you decided, because this is all really recent. You're really in the middle of a whole lot of things moving. But when did you decide that you wanted to position yourself as a coach to positions? Um, I think that was probably, you know, my first effort, at a blog and a podcast was uh, the power of transformation. And uh, you were in on some of that uh, early work, uh, Dan, advising me uh, um, uh, with that effort. But yes. it, it was too generic. Uh, it had to do with my, by the way, my recovery. Uh, I'm, most of you know, and if you don't, uh, I'm happy to say it, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been sober. Uh, for 24 years now, my sobriety date is January 23rd, 1990. And awesome. So uh, my first efforts were outreach uh, for uh, people in re- physicians in recovery or healthcare providers. The name of my website was hcprecovery.com or healthcareproviderrecovery.com. Basically, anybody in healthcare who was dealing with uh, alcoholism. 
And I, uh, so I had all this, these, this stuff inside me. I felt like I had to get it out, and I thought maybe I could help some people along the way. So I started that blog. That led to a podcast, and then that led me to you, um, uh, because Cliff Ravenscraft mentioned you, and so did my friend uh, Hope Schaefer. She uh, came back from a media conference where she heard you and Cliff and talked about you, and that's how I ended up at the sanctuary. Um, and But I realized that I was writing, uh, at one time I was writing a 1,000 words a day, uh, it was I was cranking out a lot of material, but it wasn't getting much. Uh, nobody was reading it. I don't know. I was, shouldn't say nobody, but very few people were reading it. But I didn't know how to market it. I just put it out there, uh, like we've heard about people talk about. I just put it out there and hope people would find it or it would become popular somehow. Um, but then I, I started taking a critical look at it, and it was too generic. Um, it was too broad in scope, and the recovery community, there is so much information out there uh, for people who are sober, want to be sober, or still floundering in alcoholism or drug addiction. There's just so much information out there. I really didn't feel like that was the best use of my talent or what I know, and then when I started thinking about coaching, I, I thought, well, what am I going? Who am I going to coach, and what am I going to coach about? And and then that's when I pulled on that thread of burnout uh, because I'd already been doing talks about that. I'd already been I've been counseling physicians for the last twelve years for the North Carolina Physicians Help Program. I, I work with them and uh, physicians who are in recovery, early recovery. I serve as their monitors and as their mentors and sometimes as their sponsor. And and so I felt like I feel comfortable with this crowd. I know how to talk to them. I know what they've gone through. Uh, and that's the other aspect of burnout. Sometimes when physicians burn out, they act out with drugs and alcohol. That's how they end up uh, with an addiction is because they're burned out and they turn to drugs or alcohol to make themselves feel better. And so I had all these threads laying there, and when I started pulling them together, it just kind of weaved itself into this this tapestry I call Dr. Burnout. Right. Now, but tell people how recent that's been. I mean, we're in November at this point. I mean, a lot of this getting a clear focus is really recent. It's like how the last three last three months, probably. There you go. Okay. Yeah, the last three months. So when people talk about, you know, when you started to get traction, and this is really recent. This is an ongoing kind of changing focus for you. You're still very active as a physician, but you've already mentioned you're getting these opportunities now for consulting, and you've gotten clearly focused on doctor burnout as being your focus. You have some coaching packages available. So this is in process as we speak. But it's a great example of how somebody can take their professional skills and transition into coaching if, in fact, that's a reasonable focus for you. It doesn't have to mean you stop what you're doing and then you just start from zero. It's a subtle change in what you're already doing, how you're serving people. And I think you're prepared to to have an amazing year in 2015. Let me go back over here. Okay. 
initially when I was trying to figure things out, uh, nothing, uh, everybody was giving me great advice, but it, it just somehow didn't fit or didn't make sense. Once you figure out what it is you want to do and you get excited about it, then all of a sudden everything makes sense. I don't know how to describe it any other way than that. Well, that's great advice. Yeah, being being clear, you know, I, I sometimes tell people the power of the decision, meaning when you really decide this is what I'm going to do, the power of the decision will determine the speed of the results. And we see that again and again, yeah, just getting that clarity saying, wow, this is what I'm going to do. Then all of a sudden it's like doors start to open that you didn't even know were there prior to that. Well, Clark, I appreciate your sharing so freely as you always do. I'm excited about your journey, both the past, where you've come from, and certainly excited about where you're going. I mean, it's a thrill to have you in our uh, coaching mastery program and also in the 48 Days Mastermind. So you've uh, gotten in the game solidly to uh, position yourself for this new season in your own life. Any last words you want to give our audience tonight before we say goodnight? Yes, I want to thank everybody for everything you do because I, I don't always comment on everybody's blog, but I, I read everybody's uh, blurbs they send out, and I am following some some folks' um, posts. Um, but this community, I want to thank this community because just like the mobile unit, it's not just my effort. It took the effort of a whole lot of people uh, to make that successful, I feel like this community has made me successful. And and you, Dan Miller, are a huge part of that. I want to thank you uh, for your um, enthusiasm, your energy, and your inspiration, which seem to be uh, limitless. Uh, and uh, I can't tell you how much uh, you have changed my life. And I appreciate it so much, and I appreciate the 48 Days community so much. Well, thank you for that, Clark. I mean, I'm, I'm just the, the fortunate uh, person who is standing firmly in work that he absolutely loves. I mean, I get up every morning excited about what I get to do, and it's been working with people like you and seeing the lights come on that makes me continue doing what I'm doing. So thanks for your comments. Well, thanks to all of you that are listening tonight as well. Thanks for your ongoing involvement in the 48 Days community. We appreciate your input. Excited about hearing your success stories. So keep us informed about what you're doing as you develop. Yeah, reach out to the other people. Like Clark is talking about, this is an amazing community of people who are willing to link arms, share their ideas and resources freely. So thanks for being part of this call. With that, we'll wrap up this Tuesday night brainstorming session.